0: The Blazers have won four straight. They are on a roll. Is Damian Lillard an MVP candidate? And what should the Blazers maybe give up to get John Collins forward from Atlanta to Portland? Welcome, everyone, to the Blazers Focus Podcast. I am Aaron Fentress, back for another episode. I am the Blazers reporter for The Oregonian and OregonLive.com, coming to you here in this latest podcast, which is being recorded after... Portland's pretty impressive 121 to 118 victory at Dallas impressive because once again, the Blazers have figured out a way to defeat a good team without CJ McCullum and Yusuf Nurkic. They beat Dallas Sunday night. A few days ago, they defeated the Philadelphia 76ers, who have the best record in the East. And right now, they have won four in a row. They've won six of their last seven. And they're looking like a pretty darn good team, even without McCullum and Nurkic. So we're going to talk about their current stretch right now, which is four games coming off of that uh, East Coast trip when they went 3-3. Three and three. Also, is Damian Lillard a legitimate MVP candidate? Now, this is an interesting question. He's been in the mix before, meaning he's finished in the top five. But is he now in a position where he could move into 1-2-3? Maybe 1, given how the team is playing without McCullum and Nurkic, uh, he, he, and the way he's doing it too—he's not coming out and just going ballistic like he did in the bubble. He's being very calculating. Like he'll have his moments, and but he, in ter- when he just—he's going to light it up, right? But he's also slow playing some things. He's making sure he gets people involved. He's, he's making sure Trent and Anthony Simons are not just fill-ins, but they are important parts of the offense when they're on the court. He's getting. Hanter involved routinely he, he's you know he's not even necessarily getting a ton of assists i mean he's getting his typical amount of assists but he's being deliberate in his attempts to make sure everyone stays involved so i will address how that all fits into the MVP discussion the last topic is apparently John Collins forward for Atlanta is available is this a player that the Blazers should go after and what should they offer i proposed my mistake, but I proposed Nurkic and Trent. People freaked the hell out. It was crazy. Uh, but I stand by that as a viable trade tradeoff. I'm not saying they should go do it. I'm just saying that, you know what, it's not crazy. Given where this team is, I think the idea of them going out and getting a forward like John Collins is something that they should clearly look into. I will tackle that as well. But first... Let's talk about these red hot Blazers. Okay. So in my last podcast, the Blazers were coming off of that six game road trip in which they won three and lost three. It was a solid trip, all things considered. I thought they would go two and four straight up. And they would have, if not for the miracle in Chicago, but miracles do happen and those count. And Lillard tends to do that from time to time. So, so you come home for three, you have to figure that you're going to take care business against Orlando and Cleveland. But this is a team that had lost to Oklahoma City at home. This is a team that early in the season lost to Chicago at home. So nothing was a given, especially with so much talent on the bench injured. So them winning those two games and winning them convincingly was a good sign for this team. In between those two games that they won, they defeated the Philadelphia 76ers, who have the best record in the East. Philadelphia was whole for this game because Ben Simmons was back. He didn't play in the loss in Philadelphia. Clearly, Philadelphia still had the advantage in that game, but they did not have Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons was there in Portland, and he had a great game. He put on a a display of of what you expect from Ben Simmons, 10 of 12 from the field, 23 points, nine assists, 11 rebounds. That's vintage Ben Simmons. I say that like he's always not, but that is pretty much what he does when he's on. Embiid had 35 and 9. They Those two superstars looked really good, but they were not enough to defeat a Blazers team that completely outplayed the 76. in most facets of the game. Most importantly, Portland did a great job against one of the best defenses in the league. Philadelphia ranks fifth in defensive rating and Portland put 118 on them while shooting 44.7% from three-point range. Now they were 43% overall, but still they shot well and they only had eight turnovers. And one of the keys of, of this game and of this entire stretch is that they were able to be so effective on offense because everyone got involved in some fashion. That's how you make up for losing McCullum, who was averaging, what, 27 points a game. Nurkic is having a down year. He was averaging about 10 still, but he's capable of giving you 15 to 20. When you're losing that kind of production, you need the entire roster to come together, especially when you lack depth. And I mean, they have depth, but when you're losing, you know, two of your best three players, that kind of dips into your depth. Now you're starting, you know, Gary Trenton Jr., who normally would come off the bench. You're starting Cantor, who no- normally would come off the bench. That impacts your depth. But man, in that game, Anthony Simons off the bench, four of eight for eleven. Rodney Hood, four of ten for eight. Uh, Harry Giles only gave you two points, but he gave you seven rebounds in 14 minutes. <laughs> That's some serious production in that department. And Carmelo Anthony, who has been on fire, was nine for 15 from the field, four or five from three, 24 points. Then, of course, you get 30 from Lillard. He did not shoot well, six for 21, but he got to the free throw line, which is an indication of just how smart he is. He knows when he's off or even when he's on sometimes if he sees spots where he can get into the paint, draw fouls, or even not even have to get into the paint to draw fouls. uh, He's able to do that and get a bunch of cheap points that way at the free throw line. Cantor, 10 points, 14 rebounds. Even Jones and Covington, who typically don't give you much offensively, gave you 14 points in that game combined. They were three for 9 from 3. So when you're balanced like Portland was, it, it makes them very difficult to beat. And that proved true against Philadelphia. And it wasn't just in that game that they were like that. I mean, that's that's been their thing during this run, during this stretch, is that everyone, almost every night, is coming through. Um, let's go back to the Orlando game. Again, Orlando's not any good. You expect to win that game, of course. But again, you shoot 39% from three. They didn't shoot well from you know the floor, 38.9. But if you get 39% from three and you're jacking up 46 threes, which they are, you're going to have a pretty solid game. Simons gave you 11 off the bench. Carmelo, 23 off the bench. 615 from Trent. Cantor, Jones, and Covington did not score a ton of points. They only combined for 19, but they were extremely efficient. Combined, they were 8 of 18 from the floor. Cantor gave them 10 rebounds. And of course, Jones and Covington do the, what they do with their defensive prowess. So it, it just shows that what you're seeing from this team is that everyone is contributing in some fashion. So now let's fast forward to the Dallas game. Dallas had been playing extremely well. Porzingis was finally starting to get back to his old form after struggling at the start of the season. In January, he shot about 29% from three. So far this month in February, he's shooting over 40. So with him coming together, they were finally starting to turn things around after at one point they were 8 and 13 And then they started they started winning games again. Dallas has a really good offense, not a great defense. So if you're the Blazers, you have to be able to keep up with them offensively. The Blazers come out red hot, Dallas comes back, then the Blazers explode for 44, excuse me, 45 points in the third quarter, and Dallas comes back again. So, you know, how do you win a game like this against two superstars, two young stars like Porzingis and Luka Doncic, who went for 44, 9, and 7, by the way? How do you win that game without McCullum and Nurkic? Well, you get contributions again from everybody. You know, even you know. Let's start with Carmelo. He didn't shoot well from three, one of eight, but he gave you 15 points. Why? He was seven. Excuse me. He was uh, six for nine on two point field goals. Uh, Simons took six shots, all threes, made four of them for 12 points. That's some efficiency off the bench for you. And of course, you know, Trent gives you 17. Lillard did not shoot. Well, as a whole, 12 for 26, but made five of 11 threes, gave you 11 assists, 34 points. Cantor, 14 and eight on six of seven shooting. And then Covington and Jones combined to go seven for 11. And Covington goes four for four from three for 15 points and gives you four steals and five rebounds. That is balanced throughout the lineup. That's getting everyone involved. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with how Lillard is approaching these games. But one of the things that I said after the trip was I felt like they were building towards something down the road. I felt like when they got a hole, when they got Nurkic, when they got McCullum back, that they would have a shot, especially in the second half to rattle off a stretch where they win six, seven, eight in a row. They just start to really cement themselves as a middle-of-the-west playoff team in that 4-5 or five range. Well, that kind of trend is starting now with the four in a row. The caveat to this, they've got some tough games coming up. You would expect them to win at Oklahoma City on Tuesday. New Orleans is going to be tough on Wednesday. I believe that's a pretty solid team that's been up and down there 11-15. and 15. You come back for Washington, you win that. And then you go on the road to play Phoenix, Denver, and the Lakers. That's when we'll learn the most about this team. Right now, what we know is that they are capable of defeating sub-500 teams with this roster as is. Dallas, sub-500, although they are probably better than that. Cleveland, sub-500. Orlando, sub-500. Washington, sub-500. Chicago, sub-500. Knicks, sub-500. That's all of their wins outside of the two Philadelphia wins. That's three, four. Five, six of their last eight wins have come against teams that are under 500. So while it's impressive that they're winning without McCollum and Nurkic, and they sit at fifth in the West, you can't really start taking them seriously as a contender until they defeat contenders in the West, and that's going to come up with Phoenix, Denver, and the Lakers. Now Denver, Denver's behind Portland in the standings. Denver. Is one of those teams where they were in the West finals last year, and you're kind of wondering what their problem is. Uh, but they're still a major threat in the West based on the fact that they went to the West finals last year. So that three-game stretch, you know, they could easily lose all three of those. Let's just be honest. They could. Now, they might get C.J. McCollum back by then. If they do, then I don't think they're going to lose all three. If they don't, it could happen. But we can't, you know, enter that stretch – thinking that, well, if they don't do well in that stretch without Nurkic and or CJ if he misses one or two games, that that means anything more than the fact that they just lost to three of the best teams in the West while not being whole. But regardless of what happens during those three games, the bottom line is this team is 16 and 10, and they are going to exit the first half of the season above 500, and they're going to be there despite... Losing huge chunks of time from McCullum and Nurkic, and there's no other way to spin that other than to say that a Harry Stotts has done a great job figuring out different combinations of players and how to use those players to make up for losing McCullum and Nurkic, figuring out a way to play. Better defense actually, as of late, without their rim protector in Nurkic. And actually, CJ's been playing pretty solid defense this year. And then B, Lillard, and you know, leading this team, relying and depending on and Building confidence in guys like Gary Trent as a starter, guys like Anthony Simons coming off the bench playing more than he's ever played in his career, guys like Harry Giles the third, who was the backup center and asked to play, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes a game, figuring out a way to make all of that work without your number one running mate, without your big man. I mean, he lost his pick and roll mate and Nurkic and <laughs> somehow they're still generating the same amount of offense and you lost a guy averaging 28 a game so it's been a remarkable job done by everyone on this roster so far and we'll see what happens next but there's no way that it's not going to be very interesting now let's talk about Lillard uh there's already a lot of talk right now about Lillard and the MVP it's fair It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And and this might be an unpopular opinion, but this has nothing to do with Lillard. (laughs) It has nothing to do with the Blazers. But I cannot stand early season MVP talk. It's ridiculous because it's absolutely illogical. The MVP award is given to someone for their season-long performance. We are 26 games for the Blazers, into a 72-game season. They have 46 games remaining. You're not even halfway through the season. Halfway is 36. You're at 26. You're not even at 36 games through the season, and we're talking MVP. Do you remember the last time that happened in the Pacific Northwest? It was just in the fall. It happened with Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson, after three games, had thrown, what, 13 or 14 touchdown passes? And people were talking MVP. And what happened? The wheels fell off. Not completely off. He still finished with 40 touchdowns. But clearly, second half of the season, he was nowhere near as good as he had been that first three, four, five games. And not only was he not in the MVP discussion at the end of the season, he wasn't even remotely like even on the radar. I'm not saying that's going to happen with Lillard. I'm just saying we're 26 games in. And I just rattled off that during this stretch when they've been playing well without CJ and, and Nurkic, they're doing it against mostly sub 500 teams. Like most of these wins are only impressive because they didn't have CJ and Nurk, and, and that's great. But to me, that doesn't make Lillard an NBA MVP front runner. I think it definitely puts him in the discussion with all the other good players in the league putting up great performances. But like talking about this, I'm only talking about it now because everyone's talking about it. And I just want to be the voice of reason to say, okay, it's fine to talk about it, have fun talking about it, but don't get all, you know, jacked up to the point where you're like, he's an MVP, he's an MVP. He may very well be one, but there's a lot of guys out there you can put in that discussion. And it's too damn early. It's just too early to even discuss it. But you know, I'll go ahead and I'll indulge and I'll break down for you where I sort of see this race as it is right now, if the season ended today, which it doesn't because this is not a college basketball season. This is an NBA basketball season. So right now, clearly Lillard would be in the top five, six, seven for the MVP race. I think that's fair at, at this point to, you know, make that assessment, but it's complicated. Like it, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can't just look at it from your perspective in your fan base. You have to look at the entire league. Lillard is having a great season. Again, he's leading his team to victories without McCullum and Nurkic. That is definitely something to be impressed by, but that's not going to set him apart from other contenders. First of all, you know, the, the obvious to me is Joel Embiid. I mean, this guy is absolutely phenomenal to see. I mean, he's third in the league in scoring. He is averaging 10.8 rebounds per game, which is 12. He is shooting a ridiculous percentage from everywhere. He's a, he's a big man shooting 40% from three. He's shooting 54.3% from the field. His effective shooting is 577 all of these numbers, except for the three-point shooting, are better than Lillard, which you would expect for you know a, a center of his caliber. He's going to be closer to the basket, taking more close shots. Obviously, he's clearly going to get more rebounds, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is he's out shooting Lillard from the field. He's actually out. Sh- I take that back. I just looked. He's out shooting him from three-point range, although he's taking only like three compared to Lillard's 10.5. And then the effective field goal percentage is better at 57.7 to 54.7 rebounds, domination, 10.8 to 4.4. Of course, Lillard wins the assist. Then you have to factor in the defensive factor. And this is what's going to hurt him in some cases is that Lillard still doesn't have great defensive ratings. If you look at the 538 website which everyone seems to be enamored with, Lillard's defensive rating is not very good at all. I think it's a negative 5.4 or something like that. On nba.com his defensive rating is a 155, excuse me, 155, a 115.5 which is the lowest, or I should say highest and worst of his career. You look at his defensive rating versus someone like Embiid who clearly is a legitimate defensive Force as a big man. And now you start saying, okay, well, how do you give MVP to Lillard when he's not uh, producing necessarily better numbers on offense or on defense? It's very difficult to justify that. And oh, by the way, the 76ers have the best record in the, in the East. They're 18 and 8. Steph Curry, resurgence, no Clay Thompson. Lillard's been out without McCullum for a while. The fact that they're going to get Nurkic back and they're going to get McCullum back, does that override? Golden State losing Clay Thompson for the entire season again. (laughs) So if Steph Curry does what he's doing right now and gets his team into the playoffs, that's going to be a pretty pretty compelling case. He's second in the league in scoring. He is right behind Lillard in assists, 7.2 for Lillard to 5.9. He's leading in rebounds, which is interesting, 5.4 to 4.4. And then shooting percentage, Lillard's at 37.8% from threes, whereas Steph Curry is at 42.9, which has pretty much always been the case for him in his career. His field goal percentage overall is better, 49.3 to 44.6. His effective is better at 61.4 to 54.7. So right there, and neither one of them are great defensively, but right there, how do you not give it to Curry over Lillard? I, I just, I don't see where you say Lillard's flat out the MVP over Curry, who is trying to carry his team without one of the best two guards in the NBA for the entire season. And Lillard is going to get back CJ and Nurkish. That's why I say it's too early in the season. Now, right now, you could say based on what Portland has had to deal with, you can make the argument that as of right now, Lillard is a top three MVP candidate. But McCollum's coming back. Nurkic is going to come back. Clay Thompson's not coming back. Now you look at Luka Doncic. You know, I've heard and seen some Blazers fans here and there talk about they think Lillard's better than Luka Doncic. You know, I think Lillard's more polished right now, but my goodness, Luka is just ridiculous. His three point shooting is his weakness. And so that puts Lillard ahead of him in the effective shooting department 54.7 to 52.1. But when you factor in the assists, nine point four, which is which is better than Lillard, and the eight point seven rebounds compared to four point four for Lillard, now that's just that tips the scales a bit. When you start looking at a guy who's putting up twenty eight, nine point four, and eight point seven, that's going to be a tough guy to beat. Then, of course, we have Giannis in the East, who's won it back to back years. His numbers overall, of course, amazing: twenty eight, five point six assists, and eleven point two rebounds. He's also giving you 1.2 blocks. He does turn it over too much. Free throw shooting is weak. He doesn't hit threes at all. Still has effective field goal percentage is 59 compared to 54.7 for Lillard. And he's going to be a better defensive presence for you. So that's going to be a tough guy to, to defeat in, in the MVP battle. And then Nikola Jokic. Scoring-wise, he's 26.7, which doesn't put him in that 28-29 range. But 8.6 assists, 11.3 rebounds, 85% from the free throw line. 60.7 effective. He's shooting 39% as a center on threes and 56.7 overall. Now, Denver's behind Portland, but it's a long season. Still, the better all around numbers in this situation, as far as I'm concerned, belong to Jokic. So, again, there's someone else that I would put ahead of Lillard at this point. You have someone like Kawhi Leonard, who's, you know, the Clippers are far and away better than the Blazers. He's not scoring a 28, 29 range. He's still 26.7. He's giving you five assists, six rebounds. He's shooting pretty well. Effective 56, 39 from threes. So he's in the mix as well. And of course, we cannot forget LeBron James. He's giving you 25.6 points, eight rebounds, eight assists. (laughs) Effective 57%. He's shooting 39 from threes. 49.8% from the field compared to Lillard at 446 There's another guy. Like, is Damian Lillard going to get MVP over LeBron James? Those balanced numbers, I just don't see it. So it's going to be tough. And here's another thing. For me personally, Lillard is definitely in the conversation, but he is behind Curry. He's behind Embiid. He's neck and neck with Doncic, behind Jokic as far as I'm concerned, and he's behind LeBron. So... Yes, he's a candidate. There's no doubt. But worrying about whether he's going to win it or not, way too early for that. Just way too early. There's too much basketball to be played. Let's see where this thing sits after 50 games. To me, that's when you really start. For me personally, this is not necessarily how the world looks at it. This is just how I deal with it. Heck, in college football, people start talking about the playoff picture week five or six. I refuse to talk about the playoff picture until like a week or two before the conference championship games, because it's just too damn early to talk about teams that are 4-0 or 5-0. and Who cares? There's too much football to be played. Same thing with basketball. Too much basketball remains to be played to be worrying or talking about MVP right now, beyond just saying, yeah, I think Lillard is a candidate. Done. So we'll see how it plays out. He's definitely having an amazing season, uh, and I think he's definitely going to be in the mix. Now, I do want to get into an analytics breakdown on this, because clearly the NBA has, over the last several years, shifted to being very analytically driven in terms of how people are evaluating players. It's not just about points, rebounds, assists. It's about everything that goes into how a player impacts a game. So I want to break this down for you right now just to see sort of where things are. So a site people were throwing at me uh, when I was talking about Nurkic being traded in Trent maybe for John Collins was the 538 site, which is an analytical site for a lot of different things, but they do NBA as well. And a lot of people point to it. I hadn't spent much time on it. I'd seen it before, but I hadn't really taken a deep dive into it. But I did when people were cracking on John Collins. <laughs> and I discovered, of course, that John Collins's numbers were uh, right now way better than Nurkic's. And uh, Gary Trent, according to uh, the wins above replacement and to uh, the total Raptor, which is how they sort of rate an overall um, impact that a player has on his team's success on offense and defense. There's individual uh, grades for those. So, when you look at this and look where Lillard ranks on this site, you can really see how he has sort of a long ways to go to match what prior MVPs have done in terms of their overall statistical impact based on 538. So, they go back to 2013-14 with their statistical data. And if you look at the data of the MVPs for those seasons and then compare it to where Lillard's data is now, Lillard far, falls way short of MVP status. So I'm going to break this down real quick. So first off, for those out there who don't follow this, and again, like I said, I'm, I'm new into diving deep into it, R- Raptor stands for Robust Algorithm player tracking on-off ratings. So this is supposed to take into account everything you do as a player, how you impact your teammates uh, versus how your teammates perform without you on the court, uh, the value of assists, turnovers, playing defense, just everything you bring to the game uh, using these these data tracking points that they have that supposed to give you this magical number that says who and what you are as a player. So it's pretty fascinating. But based on These statistical rankings, right now, Lillard is way off where an MVP would be based on the past six years. Lillard's total Raptor score is plus 3.4, which has him tied for 44th in the NBA. His offensive Raptor is 8.4, which is second in the NBA behind Nikola Jokic and he's ahead of Steph Curry, who's at 8.2, ahead of Kawhi Leonard, 7.2, ahead of Donchik, 7.1. And McCollum actually is, is sixth right now at 6.8. But what kills Lillard is his minus 5.0 defensive Raptor. So that puts him at an overall Raptor of 3.4, as I said, which is for, tied for 44. Fourth with Patrick Beverly and Alex Caruso. <laughs> so when you see something like that, you're gonna go, wait, wait a minute. it's died with who? Now, an overall war, which is wins above replacement, which me- measures your value uh, over who you could be replaced by, that he's at 2.8, which right now is 21st. He's right neck and neck with Harrison Barnes, Clint Capella. He's just ahead of James Harden and Jamal Murray. Now that number goes up as the season goes up is this is wins above replacement based on where you are in the season right now, which we're 26 games in for the Blazers. To put that into perspective for you, his wins above replacement last year, he checked in at seventh with 12.3. So that's going to keep going out. Now, the only reason why I'm even bringing any of this up is just for comparison's sake to past MVPs. So let's take a look at the past seven. You, you had Giannis won the last two, Then in 2018, Harden, prior to that, Westbrook, as in Russell, prior to that, Curry won it back-to-back in 2015 and 16. And then in 2014, Durant won it. So if you look at their overall Raptor and their wins above replacement, you see a significant gap between them and where Lillard sits right now. Okay, First, let's look at last season. Giannis won the MVP. He was third in overall Raptor at 8.8. His war was 13.1. Lillard that season, he finished seventh in overall Raptor at 6.4 with a wins above replacement of 12.3. So he was right there. So he finished eighth in the MVP voting, which is pretty good considering your team was below 500 and barely made the playoffs. But that shows you that, you know, being close in the Raptor, having a strong wins above replacement, got him into the MVP discussion because he had a pretty darn good season. Now, the year before Giannis won it, he was seventh in overall Raptor at 6.8 with a war of 14.3. Lillard that season was 13th with a Raptor of 5.6 and had an overall war of 15. So his, his war was better than Giannis's. He, and Lillard finished sixth in the MVP voting that that year. That's the year the Blazers were the third seed in the West and ended up going to the Western Conference Finals. The year before, 2018, when Lillard finished fourth in the MVP voting, his overall Raptor was 6.0, which was sixth, and his war was 12.8. That year, though, Harden, James Harden for Houston at the time, was number one in Raptor at 10.1. And his war was an insane twenty point nine, but Lillard had a really strong season that year. That's the year they got swept by the Pelicans, and he had that 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 crazy run in February March where he was just tearing it up. And the Blazers were the third seed, so he finished strong in the MVP voting that year. But even then, you see the difference, the gap between his raptor of six compared to Harden's ten, and the war of twelve point eight compared to Harden's twenty point nine in two thousand seventeen. Russell Westbrook, his team finished. Under 50 wins, I think they had 47 wins that year, which is very unusual for an MVP, but he had the triple-double that year after Durant was gone, and he finished ninth in Raptor at 6.8, and his war was 15.3, which is, which is strong. Lillard that year, 26th in overall, Raptor at 3.4, and his war was 9.0. You can kind of see, looking at that, how Lillard was improving uh, from 17 to 18 and through to 19 in last year. In 2016, Steph Curry won the second of his back-to-back MVPs. He was first in overall Raptor at a whopping 12.5. Now, remember, Lillard's at a 3.4 now. And here's a guy, at Curry, at 12.5 when he won the MVP. And you, can, you compare that, tune to Lillard's best statistical season, which was last year, when he had a 6.4 overall Raptor. And you look at someone like Curry that year, who had a 12.5. That shows you the gap. And the war, 26.7 for Curry that year. Lillard that season, 37th in Raptor at 2.7. And his war was 8.8. The year before, Curry gets his first MVP. He's number one in Raptor at 11. His war is 25.1. Lillard that season, 49th. In Raptor, 2.4, and his war was 8.1. And then in 2014, Kevin Durant was third in, in Raptor at 6.8, and his war was 19.7. Lillard that season, 44th at 2.8 in Raptor, which is interesting because that's close to what he is right now. He's at 3.4 right now, and in the 40th, 40th range. Durant that season, just a 9.7 war, which is interesting, but that's also back when they still had Westbrook so maybe that I don't know if that impacted his war or not not sure but anyway you see Lillard's progression though he went in total raptor he went from 44th to 49th to 37th to 26th to 6th to 13th 7th last year but right now he's 44th it's pretty interesting cuz he's having a really good statistical season but his defensive rating is killing him he's at a negative 5.0 if we look at past seasons He's clearly gone down this year. He was a negative 1.8 last season. The year before that, Lillard checked in at a negative 0.8. And the year before that, 2017-18 season, he was at a negative 0.1. So he's really falling off defensively, according to this site. He was a negative 2.4 in 2016-17. So the negative 5.0 is really low. And, you know, again, I don't, I don't know how much stock or weight I put into these things. Like you could argue, well, the way he's leading this team, the way he's keeping other people involved, the way he's maximizing the the talents, the youthful talents of Gary Trent Jr. and Anthony Simons and even Giles to get as much out of them as possible by not just going out there and trying to score 50. Uh, you, to me, that stuff can override a negative five in your defensive rating. We all know Lillard has never been a great defender, but I think I feel like he's been better than that. So clearly there's some, some statistical data in there where you could say, well, you know, he, he's not playing great defense this year. He's been off a bit on defense this year. He's letting people score more often or what have you. And that could impact his in his MVP stature because it's totally bringing down his 8.4 offensive. Raptor. So anyway, the bottom line is that comparatively speaking, based on where he is this year at a 3.4, he does not really compare to past MVPs. The lowest overall Raptor for an MVP in the past, you know, dating back to 2014, would be Westbrook Duran at 6.8 and Giannis one year at 6.8. Harden 10.1, Giannis his second MVP 8.8. Curry at 12.5 and an 11. What does that mean? Take it with a grain of salt. Who knows? But according to recent history, his overall Raptor is not tracking toward an MVP nod. We'll see how that shakes out. Okay. My final topic is the John Collins situation. I'm going to try and be quick on this because I went longer on the Lillard thing than I expected. Because Once I started diving into all the Velociraptor stats, but I still believe, I think a lot of people believe that, you know, the Blazers need uh, another, another dude, like another stud player who is going to make an impact. And we wonder, everyone wonders how they're going to get that player. I don't know if John Collins is necessarily that player. All I do know is that he's a young 23-year-old forward who is putting up very nice numbers. He's averaging around 18 points, 7 or 8 rebounds, and he's shooting a very nice line of 54% from the field, 40% from three, and 84% from the free throw line. Like I said, he's only 23. He's still growing as a player. The problem in Atlanta seems to be that he and Trey Young are not quite getting along. According to everything I've read, Collins is asking that the offense actually have a flow to it and not... Totally revolve around Young's whims. Young fancies himself a young Steph Curry. So Young likes to come down and jack up threes at times early in the shot clock. And Collins feels like he should be, he and the rest of the guys in the offense should be more involved in the offense. I mean, if you get to the point where it's four seconds on the shot clock and you don't have a shot, you get to Young. He jacks up a three, fine. But to do it right away early in the shot clock with no rhyme or reason, Collins seems to object to that. And I 100% agree with him. Uh, also, he's a guy. He's putting up numbers where you know he's probably going to want a huge contract. If you're Atlanta, you have to decide, okay. We're going to have to pay Trey Young. Are we going to pay Collins as well? Is he a true number two to Young to get us where we want to go? And so you can make the argument, well, if Atlanta is not going to do this, then why would Portland go after him and pay him a huge contract, plus give up assets for him, which is a legitimate question and concern. But there's a difference between a team not wanting a guy and a team not feeling like he fits well with Trey Young. I think we all know that Lillard, as we've seen in the way he's using young talent right now. Lillard has someone like Collins, who is very athletic, a great finisher around the basket. That's why he's shooting 55% or so, 54, 55. And he can hit the three, he's shooting 40% right now. His effective field goal percentage, I think, is 60. You know, Lillard would use a guy like that and take you know, stock in the fact that you have a young, athletic, six foot nine, tweener forward, who can do a lot of different things. You want to take advantage of that guy. He would be the best forward the Blazers have had since LaMarcus Aldridge. And it's not even close. Now let's dive into his 538 numbers, all the rage, right? So Collins right now has a plus, overall plus 3.5 Raptor and a 2.6 War, which is comparable to Lillard. Now, this is one of the things about these types of ratings. We all know John Collins is not as good as Lillard, (laughs) like that's not even a thing, but according to this, at the very least, his total Raptor and his wins above replacement are comparable to Lillard. Some people, when I presented this, so understand. So the report came out about Collins being available in a trade. The report asked who would use him or who could use him. I quote tweeted it and said the Blazers definitely could. Someone asked me what could they give for him. And so I foolishly typed Nurkic and Trent question mark and all hell broke loose. (laughs) Like it just became a Twitter frenzy of anonymous trolls coming at me, freaking out, telling me how stupid I am, blah, blah, blah. So one of the first things people were saying was that Collins doesn't play defense. But again, Collins has a defensive rating of plus 2.3. So you would be adding a plus defender. If you added him to the Blazers lineup, you could move Robert Covington to the three and bring Jones off the bench. Now, what does it cost you to get a Collins? Well, I threw out the Nurkic Trent situation, which received backlash. And I, I, I get that. Trent is killing it. He's shooting 44 points. What? Not 7% from three point range. He's averaging 15 points a game. He's been scoring in about a 20 point clip as a starter in place of CJ McCollum out with a broken foot. Clearly Trent is emerging as a legitimate threat in the NBA. He did that actually at the bubble. He's continued this season and gotten better. However, let's remember that on this team, Gary Trent Jr. is a backup. He is the number three guard behind two guards, Lillard and McCollum, who are going to play 70 minutes a game. That leaves you with 26 available minutes behind them. You have Hood as a backup guard, Trent, Simons as well. Clearly, you're going to give Trent a lot of those minutes and Trent can play small forward. You can, you know, take Jones out, Rodney Hood backs him up and Trent backs him up. So you can give Trent small forward minutes behind Jones. You can give him backup two guard minutes. So there's minutes available to give Trent. But at the end of the day, he's still coming off the bench for you. Now this season, that's spectacular. He's making 1.6 million, but he's going to become a restricted free agent. He just turned down in December an extension that would have paid him 53 million starting at about 12 million in the first year. So he clearly wants a contract that starts at maybe what, 15, 17 million? And the way he's playing, maybe he gets that. Now he will be a restricted free agent, which means the Blazers can match any offer. But let's say someone comes along and offers him a deal that starts at 16 million the first year, which is 4 million more than he's currently making, or excuse me, than turned down in the first year. It escalates from there. So you know, I'm just funky math off the top of my head. It's an extra, instead of a $73 million deal, it's a 75 or $80 million deal or whatever. So now you're looking at going into next season paying Trent 16 million. McCollum's going to make 30 million and Damian Lillard's contract jumps up to 43 million next season. So you're going to be paying 73 million to your starting guards. If you throw 16 million on there from Trent, now you're paying around 89 million. Let's just call it 90. You're paying 90 million dollars for three players in your backcourt, but you don't really have an impact forward. Are you better with that situation than you are having someone like a Collins at the four moving Covington to the three and bringing Jones off the bench? I would say no. I would rather have that money on the floor more often in the form of a power forward that's starting. Now, so clearly though, uh, to me, without a doubt, a trend for Collins trade would be advantageous for Portland. And if I'm the Hawks, I I wouldn't make that deal. That's why I have Nurkic in there. Because to me, Nurkic, Trent, maybe puts it over the top. But honestly, I think Atlanta might turn their nose up at that, to be honest with you. And it, it just really depends on how Nurkic is viewed right now. He is having a down season. Forget the fact that he's injured with a broken wrist. That doesn't matter. He'll be back. But he's shooting 48% from the field, which is the worst of his career for the or since he's been a Blazer. He's shooting 25% from three, which is actually a career high because he's finally taking threes. He's averaging one a game. So he's actually improving as a three point shooter because career wise, he's 12.5 there. His effective field goal percentage is 50, uh, this season, which is lower than it has been. It's been 50.5. It's been 51, 50.5. So not too much lower there and effective. Free throw for his shooting is way down 55.6. Last year, he was 88.6 in the bubble. Year before that, 77. So that, that will come up and I, I wouldn't be worried about that. Rebound wise, 7.7. And points 9.8 last year in the bubble 17.6 and 10.3. The year before that, before he broke his leg, he was 15.6 and 10. So clearly his overall numbers are down. His minutes played per game are down. He's down to 23. He played 31 in the bubble. He played 27 the year before 26 before year before that. So normally for the Blazers, he's been more of a you know 26 to 29 minutes per game. This year he's at 23. Part of that's been that he came in out of shape. He admitted that. He was working his way into shape. He kept saying, I'm going to get there eventually. Then he broke his wrist. So it's difficult to say that this is who Yusuf Nurkic is because of all these different factors coming into play here. He's only 26 years old, so he's still in his prime. There's no reason to believe he's necessarily in a decline. He's just off to a slow start. I feel like any minute now, we can start seeing him you know, pumping in 17-9 and nine on a nightly basis and becoming an impact player. The other thing about him, too, is defensively, he's still... Pretty darn good. Now, let's look at him compared to these. You know, I gave you the the basic statistics, but where does he sit in terms of his raptor? Because we all know it's all about the raptor. So this year so far, his overall raptor is a plus two point seven, uh, which obviously is quality. John Collins is, is a three point five. Nurkic is a six point nine plus defender right now and doing that, not being in shape, and not giving you a ton of minutes. But his offense is a minus 4.1. That you would expect to go up. What's interesting with him, to to me, if you look at Trent with an overall Raptor of minus 1.4 and a wins above replacement of 0.5, you look at Nurkic as an overall plus 2.7 with a wins above replacement of 0.8, you can make the argument that Collins, who is in, has a Raptor of 2.6, which is more than Nurkic and Trent combined, and, excuse me, has a war of 2.6 and then has a Raptor of 3.5, which is more than what Trent and Nurkic are together because Trent's Raptor is a minus 1.4. For all the talk about Trent being a good defender, his defensive Raptor is a minus 2.6. So he's a minus defender right now, according to this website. And his offense is a plus one too. So right now, John Collins has a better war. Then those two combined, and a better total Raptor than those two combined, because those two combined right now actually only have a combined 1.3 positive Raptor compared to Collins, who was sitting at a 3.5. However, if the old Nurkic comes back, if we go in to this website and we look at Nurkic the year he broke his leg, the 2019, 18, 19 season, He had an overall Raptor of 7.2 and a wins above replacement of 10. His offense was a plus 2.1. His defense was a 5.2. So that guy is better than Collins. If I'm trading that guy, yeah, probably not going to do that. But is that guy coming back? I I mean, I I would think so. But is he for sure? I don't know. And then long term, he has one year left on his deal after this year. How much are you going to pay him? So let's say he, he does come back to his old form and he's a $20 million guy. You're paying $20 million for Nurk, seventeen million for Trent. So you got $90 million backcourt plus Nurkic. You know, you, you start creeping more and more into the luxury tax, which is something they clearly wanted to avoid this year based on some of the moves they made. Their goal was to stay under the tax and they did. So I don't know how you're going to add 13 million in payroll for Lillard, another 14 million for Trent, and pay a bunch of money to Nurkic over the next two off-seasons and still stay above water with everything else you need. Now, other guys' contracts are going to you know, come due. Derrick Jones Jr. is on a two year deal. Covington's on a two year deal. Cantor has one year left on his deal. But to me, you have to ask yourself A, is Nurkic going to get back to his old form? Which I, I'd lean toward yes. B, how much do I want to pay him down the line? What am I going to do with Trent? And do I pass on an opportunity to get a really good young forward who is literally just tapping into his potential? So I'm not saying they should just rush out and do this. I don't think they're going to do it. I honestly don't know if Atlanta would make that deal. I'm just saying that there's no way you could not consider that based on everything I just talked about. I'm going to drop it for now because, like I said, I don't think it's going to happen. I just think these types of conversations are fascinating. A fan asked me about it. I responded. Then things went went sideways because people are rude and weren't raised properly. And then all of a sudden, I have Nurkish tweeting at me, calling me high, saying, I know drugs are illegal in Oregon, but don't smoke it all up or something like that, Uh, which I thought was funny. I mean, no harm, no foul there. That's fine. Nurkish can come at me all he wants. But you know, the bottom line is people talk sports. People talk Trades. They compare players and they have discussions. That's what people do. And quite frankly, players should not care either way. Anyway, enough on that. We'll see what happens if the Blazers try and make a trade in any capacity this offseason or heck, before the trade deadline in about a month. I think if they want to contend, if they truly want to make a move in the West, they're going to need to add another guy uh, who's a star caliber guy. So we'll see if they're able to pull that off or if they just stand pat. That is the conclusion of the Blazer Focused a Podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to click subscribe. You can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts.